Sir Belper the Two One Brass. I'm Carson Sestouli. This is Fangraphs Audio. My guest on this edition of Fangraphs Audio, making his last of the uh, recent spate of playoff appearances. Uh, I should say playoff-related appearances. Dave Cameron, who is the guest, is not in fact the playoffs, but he uh, has analyzed the hell out of them. Is what he's bo- uh, mostly done of late, and uh, he analyzes the hell out of. Uh, well, the, this World Series that has just ended. If you have not been paying attention, uh, what has happened is the Red Sox have won the World Series. Six games, it seems like. Uh, you know that. What you don't know is precisely uh, what Dave Cameron thinks about it when one allows Dave Cameron to talk uh, for uh, the bulk of 30 minutes. It's about the That's about the length of this edition of Fangraphs Audio, during the course of which listener might hear uh, Dave Cameron discuss exactly how the Red Sox got the better of Michael Waka, how that happened. They might hear uh, how perceptions have changed, perhaps uh, regarding Koji Uehara, um, who did not necessarily pitch much differently this year, uh, but did it for a uh, perhaps a more notable club, uh, and certainly for one that won the World Series, which is different. Uh, you'll also hear what the schedule is starting from now, qualifying offers around the corner. Free agency is even is around the second quarter. So if you go down... And you take a corner, and there's qualifying offers, and then after that corner, uh, basically you're going around the block. Let's all go around the block with Dave Cameron. He's been around the block a couple times. <laughs> you know, oh, let's stop. We're going to stop it right now. It's Fangraphs Audio. It features Dave Cameron analyzing, as I say, analyzing the hell out of, out of the playoffs. And it begins right now. to a french doctor oh yeah yeah how was it it uh it was actually pretty good just go in it's almost wrong they uh i don't know if this is the case with all of them but uh she took much less information than a uh, typical american doctor would oh yeah yeah huh uh and i was wondering i assume that's to avoid lawsuits is why you would take more and more information uh or maybe to provide better care oh well interesting there you go yeah, she asked me my own height and weight. They usually don't do that at the doctor's office. They weigh you every time. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. I didn't know. I just gave her some numbers that sounded reasonable. <laughs> yeah, right. Also, I think I'm 182 centimeters. Do you know what you are in centimeters? No idea. Yeah, yeah. Also, you got to give your weight in kilograms. You know what? You know that? Uh, no. Yeah. Well, you got to figure these things out, Cameron, before you before you go to France. Isn't that why they have scales? Yeah, they um, fewer of those in this particular office. Oh, yeah. okay. <clears throat> Didn't really matter though. I have an ear infection because I'm because uh, uh, I'm a baby. Yeah. Sorry. What was the last time? What was the last adult person you knew that had an ear infection? I don't know that I've ever known an adult that had an ear infection. Kids get ear infections like every day. Yeah, right. It seems like that's all they do is get ear infections. Yeah, right. But but name an adult. Like if you can name an adult that had an ear infection. I mean, I could name an adult that had an ear infection when they were a kid. <laughs> you? Did you ever have one? <laughs> Probably. I mean, I would think it's likely. I haven't looked through all my own medical files when I was four, but seems seems likely. Yeah. Well, listen, I just want you to know, I, I assume you have something uh, – on the agenda for this conversation, I, I was uh, 
just um, doing my own part to to drive loads of traffic to Fangraphs.com uh, by putting together a statistical report on the Caribbean leagues. Oh, I thought you were uh, going to get all those moms searching for ear infection podcasts. Oh, oh, yeah, we could do that. Maybe we'll put that in as one of the yeah. tags. Right. Let's uh, let's bring in all the soccer moms. Well, they should go to the doctor. That's what they should do. <laughs> right. Yeah. Okay. Um, all right. Well. Uh, well. All right. Um, that's I've exhausted my end of things. I guess the World Series is also on the agenda. I mean, I think that's the point of this podcast. Yes. Yeah, it's over the World Series. It is. Um, Are you happy about that? Yeah. Why? Uh, you mean by the result? Or no, just the fact that it's over. I mean, it's well known that you're not a huge fan of the postseason. So I'm not a huge fan of the postseason. Although I did actually uh, find a different way to consume it that is better, and that is largely by means of the MLB.com condensed game. Right. So you didn't have to watch the game, basically. Well, you don't have to watch the whole thing. It's 20 minutes of the of the most appropriate action. For some reason, it actually was more enjoyable because there was also like like it was actually a little bit exciting. I would wake up in the morning. And I and I would uh, try and avoid the result, and then I would, um, and then I would you know consume the game that way. And there's something about having to sort of pursue it as opposed to it being maybe more ubiquitous that uh, that made it more pleasant. So it was actually exciting. And of course, uh, I'm from the Boston area, and uh, even if I'm not necessarily a huge Red Sox fan anymore, uh, people I know are, and they are excited. Right. Maybe Major League Baseball should look into this condensed game as like a live option. I mean, maybe this is like, uh, you know, for next year, we just go with the, the one pitch at bat, uh, where you, you only have to, you know, every at bat lasts one pitch and you skip, skip through all the commercials and, uh, 20 minutes in and out. In and out. Yeah. Yeah. Well, maybe uh, that's a, well, there's actually, I was recently, uh, a couple of days ago, I was talking with an Australian who's a, who, uh, who not only does he does he watch cricket, he, but he plays cricket, and he apparently there's a sort of cricket. I don't know how long it's been around, but it's called 2020, and um, you know because cricket can last like five days, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah. So they have a sort where where they just do 20 overs. You don't need to know what an over is, but basically it makes it shorter. And okay. uh, And now they have like two hour. It becomes it makes it two hours. But yeah. That's- it, that's still not 20 minutes. No, it's not 20 minutes, but it's a lot shorter than a um, than a regular days. cricket match. I mean, if right. you were if you were going to find one way to still sort of preserve the spirit of baseball, but make the game much shorter, would you would it be the count? Would it be changing the count? Uh, that would probably be the most dramatic way, other than just like maybe you know. Getting rid of the Red Sox. They seem to make every game twice as long as it needs to be. But, you know, I think short of that, uh, yeah, I mean, doing something with the count or, you know, I mean, I think not that it would be uh, entertaining for long once the novelty wore off. It would be kind of fun to watch a baseball game where every batter got one pitch, right? Like, uh, you know, you swing and hit or you take a walk if the pitch is outside the strike zone. And, uh, you know, no walk-up music, no... You know, stepping out of the box. You get you get one pitch. You get in, you take your hack, and then let's go on. That would be, like, for for a short period of time, I think, kind of an enjoyable sport. Well, it would be fun to see an exhibition version of that. Right, um, yes. I mean, you wouldn't want this in the World Series, necessarily. But, I mean, I think the idea of, like, you know, it's, uh, you know, Lance Lynn versus David Ortiz, and it's one pitch. What are, what are they going to do? Like, what's he going to throw? Like, you know, you know Ortiz is up there looking to hack, and... Uh, you know, like, I think the strategy of, 
you know, do you do you go with your best pitch that everyone knows is your best pitch, or is there a game theory element of maybe you know you try and throw like something he's not looking for, even though it's a lo- lower quality offering? Like you know, it could be fun, maybe. Well, yeah. So Craig Kimbrell would probably be even more valuable at that point, right? Yeah, right. I think you would only want relievers. <laughs> I mean, right. If every batter is one pitch, uh, you know, you could basically get through nine innings on you know forty pitches probably. Well, that's interesting, right? Because we know that uh, great starting pitchers could probably also be pretty good um, relievers, but not that's not the case with every starting pitcher. Some starting pitchers are starting pitchers because they have a bre- breadth right. of durability, uh, right? Yeah. And yeah. you know because they throw four pitches all pretty right. well as opposed right. to yeah. one or two plus pitches. So yeah. so in that instance, uh, I mean Kimbrel, Kimbrel I assume is still very good. Um, right, a role as Chapman still tough. Yeah. yeah, right. But who would be? I mean, do you think the best closers would still would would just become the best? I mean, like Matt Harvey, a healthy Matt Harvey is really good to have. Yeah, I mean, so. right. I mean, you know, there's still a spot in the league for Clayton Kershaw or Justin Verlander at this point. But I think, you know, obviously you don't need rotations anymore. I mean, you know, the whole the game would dramatically change. Uh, and you don't need Bryson in Arroyo anymore. Yeah, Bronson Arroyo completely goes away. You know, like the, those kinds of players cease to exist in this sport. Yeah. I think at this point, every pitcher probably throws 100. And if you don't throw 100, you're probably not going to, you know, be, be of much value. Yeah, right. It, those would be low-scoring games. But... um. Right, another reason they would go fast. Yeah, right. That's a good point. Anyway, uh, okay, that's a thought experiment that's done. <laughs> Wait, what are we talking about? Uh, the World Series happened. The World Series, yes. What? If, right. okay. uh, listen, the Red Sox um, hit Michael Walker quite a bit. Uh, um, yes, not and, physically, but yeah. Right, they hit they had they hit his pitches quite a bit. Looks like Jeff Sullivan even wrote about that today, if you can believe it. He did. Yeah. Um, how did they do it, though? Because this was a, a pitcher who – well, here's two things that I know about Michael Walker. One is that uh, both in the playoffs and before that, uh, he pitched quite well against uh, major league batters. I also yeah. know that it's maybe been somewhat surprising that he's done so. Not incredibly, but somewhat surprising given the fact that he really only has two pitches and he has, a, sh- I guess what you might call a show-me curve, a, a pitch he can throw for a called strike but which he doesn't – he can't really throw uh, to get a batter to chase necessarily. And you say, well, a guy with that um, – a guy with that makeup uh, – well, you know, I mean that's maybe what Iwakuma throws too and he was also very successful. So um, – but that's that's what I know about him. How did the Red Sox end up getting loads of hits off of him? Yeah, I think what we saw is they were very aggressive early on first pitch fastballs. So if, if Waka came over with a, you know, kind of get-ahead strike, they were going after it. They weren't just taking strike one. And then I think we saw Waka may have, you know, gotten himself in a little bit of trouble by perhaps over-adjusting. So I think he knew that the Red Sox were going to adjust, and, you know, now that they'd seen fastball change uh, predominantly, they were going to be looking for those pitches. So he actually threw a pretty good amount of curveballs. I think he threw like 11 or 12%, which for him is a very high number uh, relative to what he did in the regular season. Uh, and his curveballs were occasionally successful, but also not amazing. Uh, and and they came at the expense of his changeup, which is by far his best pitch and the reason he's a major league pitcher. Uh, so he basically, uh, for likely game theory reasons, started throwing a lower quality pitch more often uh, and throwing his highest quality pitch less often. Maybe, maybe not the greatest idea. I mean, I think there's absolutely a place for game theory, uh, and you want to, you know, not let the hitter know what's coming. And if you only have, you know, two offerings that you generally use, that's that's difficult. So adding in a third 
will keep them off balance. But if that third pitch is not that good and, and you're throwing your best pitch less often, you're probably going to be less effective. And so I think Waka might have, uh, you know, maybe outthought himself a little bit. Now, does, does Waka's performance here in, in, a, I guess also the way the Red Sox attacked him like that, um, does it, uh, foreshadow some problems that Waka could have in the future? Or, as you say, was it an instance maybe more of uh, overcompensating within the game? Yeah, I mean, I don't know that this is going to, like, you know, spell doom and gloom and the Red Sox figured out Michael Waka. I mean, I think we should also note that the Red Sox offense is very good. <laughs> and most teams are not going to be able to uh, hit Michael Waka because they don't have David Ortiz and Dustin Pedroia and Jacoby Ellsbury and, you know, all the offensive talent that the Red Sox have. Uh, I think, you know, Waka's, uh, kind of mediocre breaking ball has always been the, the knock against him, and the thought was that he needed some kind of, uh, curveball or slider to kind of put hitters away. I think the reality is you can have your changeup be a put away pitch. Uh, but the breaking ball certainly helps you, especially against same handed hitters, where, you know, right on right, uh, generally changeups aren't quite as effective as they are right on left or left on right. Uh, so I think, you know, in Waka's case, improving his curveball or adding some kind of, you know, short slider, uh, or even a cutter of some sort would help him against right-handed hitters, uh, where he's mostly just fastball changeup. Uh, and the, the curveball, I think, um, you know, it could, could end up being a good pitch for him, but I don't know that he needs another pitch necessarily that's good against left-handers, and a curveball generally doesn't have a large platoon split. So I wouldn't be shocked if at some point in his career Michael Waka picked up a slider. Oh, okay, and what do we know? Uh, this, I mean, this naive question, but like you, you say, wouldn't be surprised if you picked up a slider. What is the sort of track record for a pitcher doing that? Like, you know, a guy comes up with two pitches as a third. I mean, uh, what's the sort of process that the players go through for that? Yeah, I mean, some pitches are a lot harder to learn than others. I mean, I think the changeup is one that we've seen. It's not so easy for a guy to just learn the feel on a, a really good changing, you know, a, a fading changeup that has good movement and looks like his fastball and has good velocity separation. Like, you know, when you talk about a pitching prospect who has a really good fastball and breaking ball but needs to develop a changeup, that's, you know, that's not an easy thing to do. I think adding the slider is probably the easiest pitch for a, for a pitcher to uh, pick up because it's essentially – uh, only going to be used or primarily only going to be used against same-handed hitters. So you don't have to necessarily worry about, uh, you know, spotting it to both sides of the plate. You're just going to bear, you know, 90% of sliders are low and away from the hitter that, it, you know, it's kind of tailing away from them into the uh, opposite batter's box. And you're basically getting them to chase a pitch that starts in the zone and ends up out of the zone. Uh, this is not a pitch that's nearly as hard to pick up as, as a changeup or even a curveball. Uh, so I think, you know, the prognosis for previous pitchers, just adding a slider in order to, to kind of even out their platoon splits is pretty good. I mean, I think we've seen pitchers, uh, you know, kind of change their breaking balls, go from a curveball to a slider. Uh, and it doesn't seem to be that difficult of a transition. Um, uh, the, uh, after the game, David Ortiz uh, suggested uh, in his press conference that maybe this uh, Boston team was less talented than uh, than both the 2004 and 2007 teams, and he seemed to he also suggested though that uh, it was full of players. I mean, this is the narrative uh, with which you might be familiar regarding this Red Sox team, but you know they are uh, blue collar sorts. Uh, there's you know great deal of camaraderie, et cetera. He said it's very satisfying winning with this team, even if it is less talented. Uh, but was this team less talented than that than those 04 and 07 teams? 
I don't think so. I think this is a fun way to prop yourself up and say, look at the character and the heart and the hustle, and look at how good of people we are because we actually weren't that good. Uh, the Red Sox led the major leagues in war by a pretty good margin. This was a pretty fantastic team. I think you can look up and down this Red Sox roster and not find a hole, right? Like, their starting pitching is good. Their, the end of the game bullpen was, you know, one of the best in baseball. Their starting lineup, one through nine, was excellent. They had a terrific pinch hitter. Uh, they had, you know, platoons they could run. They had, you know, multiple good catchers, and they were picking between above-average catchers for the World Series. Uh, you know, they, when um, Will Middlebrooks uh, proved to, you know, maybe not be as good as they hoped early in the, the playoffs, they replaced him with Xander Bogarts, who might be the best prospect in baseball. Um, the idea that this, this Red Sox team lacked talent and overcame it with character is... Uh, baloney. This this Red Sox team was awesome, and they won because they were really good. I mean, you know, being a bunch of good guys who worked hard probably helped, but this was not a non-talented team. Right. Yeah. And uh, well, there was a um, just sort of dovetail with that comment. Uh, Johnny Gomes actually cited War. He did in his uh, post game. Well, it's not really a post game. I mean, it was like literally on the field. Yeah, yeah post game. Right. Yeah. yeah, on the on field interview. Uh, he says that. Uh, it's a clever turn of phrase you might not have heard before, Dave Cameron. He says that he knows about the stat called war, but he's the sort of guy you want to go to war with. Yeah, I, I like uh, – I think Ben Badler it was uh, noted on Twitter, like, clearly Gomes had prepared this speech ahead of time. And Ken Rosenthal even said before he asked the question, like, Gomes instructed him what question to ask. To uh-huh. lead in. So, like, Gomes had this plan, like – on the plane back from St. Louis, he's like, what do I say when they hand me the microphone after we win the World Series? And, like, Badler wrote, like, a great comment of, like, saying, you know, you just won your first world championship in history, fulfilling a childhood dream, and your instant reaction is to troll sabermetricians. Like, this is the thing you want to do, is to, like, poke fun at nerds. Uh, that's... I mean, you know, thanks for the shout-out, Johnny Gomes. But, uh, you know, I noted later on Twitter, the only reason Johnny Gomes is in the major leagues is nerds. He got a, His first job came from Andrew Friedman. His big break in his breakout season came playing for Billy Bean. And then he got his first two-year contract from Ben Sherrington. Uh, you know, Johnny Gomes, for the most part, has, has his career to thank to, you know, moneyball GMs who overlooked his deficiencies. And, uh, and actually, it seems to be that there's a, uh, there's a possibility that one of the things – Johnny Gomes offers uh, well because right anything can be measured. It's just it's just a question of how blunt your instrument is, right? And it seems like maybe the instrument regarding the effects of team chemistry is getting a little bit less blunt. Uh, yeah, maybe. I mean, I think you know. Uh, it's one of those things where it's like, what do you mean by chemistry, right? Like everyone has a different definition. I think there's absolutely a very real. Uh, instance of value in working hard, right? And so, like, not going clubbing at 3 a.m. and not getting hooked on drugs and not getting STDs from hookers that cause you to go on the disabled list. Like, these things that are, like, off-the-field decisions that have to do with character and morale and whatever you want to, you know, label them as, it can have a really large impact on, on your ability to stay healthy and perform well. And, uh, you know, if you go out, you know, you're doing cocaine until 5 in the morning and before a day game, you're probably not going to do very well the next day. Mm-hmm. You want guys who don't do those things. The, you know... Does growing a beard make you play better? Probably not. Like, the, the kinds of things that are generally cited as reasons for why these guys were, you know, really good teammates, you know, I think it's mostly just media-driven narrative. Right. Uh, speaking of media-driven narrative, and 
Coach Uehara has been uh, – you could make a case, at least on a per inning basis, that he's been a top three reliever. Uh, since since he moved to relief after uh, you know signing, I guess he he started off as a uh, um, as a starter with the Baltimore Orioles in 2009. But so, since switching to relief, he hasn't posted uh, his his ex, his highest xFIP minus uh, is 64. So right. he's it was 36 uh, percent better than league average. Um, right. This year it was 53. Um, it seems like maybe. Uh, by virtue, first of all, of controlling, um, I guess his home, his home runs, uh, his home run rate was lower this year. Uh, he had a, a, a war over three, and also the fact that he played with the team that won the championship. Uh, he's now regarded, I think it's fair to say, as, uh, uh, I mean, his, his reputation is finally beginning to uh, match his production. Um, what the, the Red Sox have him again for 4.25 million next year, I think. Yeah. Uh, the vesting option. Um, yeah. it, it, this is a player. I mean, I guess just comment on that. Like, how how much has his perceived value um, increased relative to his actual value? Right. I mean, I don't think there's any question that baseball has vastly underrated Koji Uehara for the last few years. This is a guy two years ago. The last time the Cardinals won the World Series was on the Texas Rangers, was left off the World Series roster in favor of Mark Lowe because the, the Rangers didn't trust him because he gave up a few home runs early in the in the postseason. Uh, and so they left him off the World Series roster and decided, we don't have a spot in the bullpen for this guy. Even though he owns the greatest strikeout-to-walk ratio of any pitcher in the history of Major League Baseball, uh, he was decided to not be good enough to pitch the Rangers in that series. Over the winner, $4 million contract, uh, even though, you know, coming off a pretty solid season again, uh, Uhar has been, uh, basically who he is his entire career since coming over here. Tons of strikeouts, no walks, and the occasional home run ball, and you kinda know what you're getting with him. Uh, he's an extreme fly ball pitcher, so you just know that occasionally the ball is gonna go over the fence, but you live with it because he's gonna strike out 20 guys for everyone he walks. Uh, I think now people will hopefully say, huh. Maybe Uehara is better than we gave him credit for. We shouldn't have pigeonholed him because he throws 88 and he throws a splitter instead of a breaking ball. Uh, you know, maybe this that type of pitcher is better than we think. And I think, you know, this kind of tails in Michael Waka and James Shields and all these other pitchers who have this kind of similar repertoire of, you know, scouts really like breaking balls and they don't like change-ups and splitters nearly as much. Uh, but, you know, it seems like every pitcher who comes over from uh, Japan or, you know, Hinjin Ryu from Korea has had the same knock against them where they're primarily, you know, lower to average velocity guys with dynamite change-ups or split fingers, and they're all awesome. Hiroki Kuroda, Hisashi Iwakuma, uh, Kazusaki was really good for a couple of years, uh, Ryu, Uehara, like all these guys, Ujinichi Tozawa throws a little harder, but still, you know, not a, a big breaking ball guy. Uh, all these guys come over with really devastating either change-ups or split fingers, and they far outperform expectations. And I think eventually <laughs> the major league teams are going to have to catch up and say, uh, you know, maybe we, we should really like these guys. And I think, you know, you're going to see with Masahiro Tanaka this year, this offseason, he's probably going to be, beat you Darvish's contract uh, because he throws the same kind of thing. He throws strikes, and he has a dynamite splitter, uh, and he's going to get, you know, in excess of $100 million for it. Oh, wow. That's, yeah, that's pretty significant. Uh, um just quickly with regard to the Cardinals, is there um, there was the issue um, of um, how they handled Ortiz, I guess, um, and, you know, intentionally walking him. Is there anything else that they conspicuous that they could have done that Matheny could have done, or is it just really a question of uh, they lost the games? 
Yeah, I mean, I have a piece that will actually be up probably before the podcast goes up uh, that says basically the Cardinals, uh, here's a couple things that as great an organization as they are that they could have done differently that would have improved their chances of winning the World Series. Uh, and in the postseason, uh, specifically trusting their bullpen, uh, I, I'm noting in that piece that 64% of the innings thrown by the Cardinals in the World Series were thrown by their starting pitchers, uh, and their starters in the series had an ERA over five. Uh, you know, 36% of their <laughs> innings were thrown by relievers, and their relievers had an ERA under three. Uh, you know, it's no secret the relief pitchers just perform better than starting pitchers, uh, but Mike Matheny decided to put most of his eggs in his starting pitcher's basket, and they lost. Um, hopefully this is a lesson Matheny can learn and say, you know, in the future, maybe I'm going to go with my relievers uh, in critical games and, and not a tiring starting pitcher. Um, and then, you know, I think the second thing, is they just throughout the season they put too much faith in Daniel Descalso and Pete Cosma to hold down the starting shortstop job uh, when they're both basically replacement-level scrubs who are fringe major league players or, at best, bench guys who, you know, you play in case of an emergency they shouldn't be a starting platoon on a World Series contender. Uh, at some point during the season after Rafael Furcal got hurt, or in anticipation of Rafael Furcal getting hurt as always, <laughs> they should have uh, acquired a better shortstop. I mean, you know, it's hard to know exactly, uh, you know, what the asking price was on every player they inquired about, and I'm sure they tried, but in retrospect, I would imagine the Cardinals are a little frustrated that they didn't acquire uh, Eric Ibar or Alexi Ramirez or Jed Lowry or Stephen Drew or one of the number of shortstops to change teams over the last 12 months because having a major league shortstop might have won them the World Series. Right. Yeah, I guess if you have both for Call and Lowry uh, en- entering into a season, you think, well, that's maybe we'll get 600 plate appearances combined. Right. I yeah. mean, I think, you know, you, you, you mm-hmm. look at guys like that and say, okay, you know, they're not both going to be healthy. And if they are both healthy, then that's fine. I have a nice little bench player. And, uh, you know, having depth in the National League is not a problem because uh, you have to pinch hit for your pitcher all the time and there's double switches. Uh, when, you know, the Cardinals had basically no depth. They had no bench. Uh, they had to pinch hit for their pitcher, but they didn't have anyone to do that. And then they had to pinch hit for their shortstops, and they had no one to do that either. And I think what we saw was the bottom of their lineup was – completely ineffective in the World Series, and they were completely reliant on their top five hitters to score runs, and their top five hitters couldn't score enough runs to overcome the fact that they were carrying, you know, a bunch of zeros behind them. Okay, so uh, World Series is over. Um, yep. uh, do, uh, do you have any final comments about that? Because if you don't, I, I'm curious as to uh, just the schedule now. I, 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 what, we have five days for qualifying offers, is that right? Yeah, I believe the qualifying offers are due five days from today. Uh, so teams basically have uh, a few days to decide who, who they're going to make the qualifying offer to. And then free agency begins. And uh, uh, the players who receive the qualifying offer have a week to decide if they're going to accept it or not. So they can go shop themselves around for a week, figure out their market value. Uh, but, yeah, free agency kicks off next week. Wow, yeah. And do... Uh... Well, what, one thing I believe has, has been observed is typically those signings uh, at the beginning of the f- sort of free agency window, uh, they tend to be more expensive in terms of uh, what we would assume uh, relative to, to dollars per win and all that. Yeah, right. If you sign a guy in October or, I guess, November, uh, you're going to pay a higher price than if you sign a guy in February. Essentially, uh, the, the player has less and less leverage as the offseason goes on. The longer you wait, the better deal you get. The uh, flip side of that is the worst player you get. So the uh, you basically are saying, I'm going to get the pick of the litter uh, at the beginning of this offseason, but I'm going to pay a higher price in order to get the kind of player or this precise player I want. 
And then at the end of the offseason, when you have more leverage and prices are lower, you're dealing with leftovers. And so, you know, maybe the best players have already been uh, signed, and you now have to kind of pick up the pieces with whatever anyone else didn't sign, but you're going to get better rates uh, at the end of the year. So if you're super picky, you can pay a premium and get a player in the next few weeks. If you want a deal, wait a few months. And so is that – so at the end of that, is that when the Rays are going to sign a first baseman? Like is, uh, is yeah, that basically the, what they do every year? Yeah. First it was Casey Koshman. Uh, then it was James Loney. I think, uh, you know, let's find – you know, maybe they're going to bring Mark Grace back out of retirement. <laughs> uh, you know, they're going to find some underpowered good defensive first baseman uh, who they'll sign for 2 or $3 million or something. Uh, you know, I think this is uh, kind of the classic, you know, dumpster dive – is the Rays have seen that, you know, no power first basemen are very cheap because teams want power from their first baseman, so the Rays are just willing to punt power from their first baseman, get defense instead, and spend their money elsewhere. Okay. Uh, do you have do you have a sense of uh, if, if anything is going to happen, um, with, you know, like right, uh, right as soon as free agency starts, um, what, yeah, that, what think, that will be? I think what we're probably going to see is, uh, you know, there's going to be a pretty significant log jam waiting for the Robinson Cano signing to drop because the Yankees have a lot of money to spend and if they spend it on Cano uh they're going to have probably a lot less interest in some of the other big name free agents uh and so I think what you're going to see is a lot of the second tier guys who are hoping the Yankees start bidding on them are going to have to wait until Cano signs and and if he goes to New York then they're going to have to pursue something else if he doesn't go to New York then all of a sudden the Yankee money is uh you know in play for a lot of other players um, so I think what we're going to see is uh, the Tanaka posting is going to be a huge one because basically every team with money is interested in him, and that posting is going to go insane. Uh, so I think he's going to kind of be the, the first pitcher domino to drop, and Cano's going to set the hitter market. Uh, and depending on what Cano gets is going to set determine what Ellsbury gets and all these other guys. So I think we're probably not going to see any movement until uh, Tanaka gets posted and Cano signs probably with New York. Uh, but if he doesn't sign with New York, that'll change the whole landscape. Okay. Yeah, I, I'm satisfied. You satisfied yet? I am satisfied. Okay. All right. Well, then, uh, then that's been a podcast. It has been. Yeah. All that right. Very good. One with several breaks. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Hope uh, maybe I've edited them out, and the uh, listener doesn't even know. Well, now the listener knows. Listener, I'm letting you in on a secret. There were there were technical difficulties. Ugh, they were miserable technical difficulties. Anyway, uh, thank you very much, Dave Cameron. Thanks, Carson. Dave Cameron, managing editor, the managing editor of Fangraphs. Uh, uh, I'm Carson Stooley. This has been Fangraphs Audio.